Welcome to the Spirituality of Strength Training with your host, Anna Willard. This podcast is dedicated to bring you knowledge, wisdom, inspiration, and guidance to wherever you may be on your health journey. For those who are new to me, I am a kettlebell strength coach, a movement nerd ninja, and an empowerment coach on a mission to bring you hope through our health. The root word of health comes from wholeness. The root word of wholeness comes from holy. Despite our differences with religion and spiritual beliefs, we are all human beings with a body that is designed to reflect this holiness through our health. It wasn't until my seventh year as a health profession where I went into a deep awakening of understanding what does it mean to train my spirit and to heal my spirit through the physical. You'll hear a little bit more about my story from other health professionals, from strength coaches, psychiatrists, spiritual gurus and leaders, to other people who talk about the importance of our health as a community body and the health of our planet as well. This podcast is to allow us to step into our whole health, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Thank you for being here. If you love what you hear, I encourage you to subscribe. If you want more inspiration and quotes from these podcasts, I encourage you to follow me on Instagram at Anna underscore Willard underscore. I encourage you to do a little bit of a movement, either yoga flow, go for a walk, sit in nature as you enjoy this episode. Hey, strong ones. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. Many of you know I am hosting my first Women of Iron Strength Retreat. This is June 22nd and 23rd down in Salt Lake City with Anne Cass Stevens, a Strong First team leader. We are going to be diving into how to get your first pull-up or increase your pulse with a weighted pull-up, how to get a PR with your press, play around, sort around as you improve your pistol squats. Throughout the retreat, we will also be diving into skills and drills and effective ways of training for the Strong First Level 1 and or Level 2. This is not a Strong First event. This is just a retreat to help cultivate women together to build that mental, physical strength and confidence to go into possibly a Strong First certification. And if you are interested, this is a great retreat to help you and start training for an Iron Maiden. I am so pumped about this event. I am extending out the early bird price until June 14th. That means you will be saving $100 on this event. The day and a half retreat, first day we'll be going over all the drills and the skills for those three lifts and the level one, level two skills. And the second day is the day where we will allow and open up for PRs. So if you've always been hesitant to lift heavy and get PRs and having eyes on you, this is a really good 
retreat and chance and opportunity for you to practice owning your strength and the fact that it's safe to be seen. The goal of this retreat is to help you increase those PRs with those three lists, increase PRs in life with building friendships and cultivating training buddies, and creating a community of strong women who are eager to support each other along our strength journey. Again, you'll be saving $100 until June 14th. I so look forward to having you at this retreat. If you have any questions, please reach me out to me. I'm always on social media. You can find the links to the Instagram and Facebook down in the show notes. I will also put my email in the show notes as well. So you can reach out to me there. Again, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. And I so look forward to this retreat where we are building a strong community of women, helping each other improve and getting some PRs with those lifts and PRs in life. Thank you so much and blessings on your journey. <laughs> hey, strong ones, and welcome to today's show. Today we have two couples on. It is a power couple. We have Kristen and Andy Wallace. Andy Wallace is a speaker who talks about the intersection of faith and domestic violence. He has been a, or he was a pastor for 10 years and interviewed over 200 victims and perpetrators, which I'm really interested to hear about his perspective on that. Kristen and I met at the Jill Fit Retreat down in LA in April, which I almost didn't go to, which I'm so glad I went and trusted my instinct on this. And we just connected right away, and I felt she was like another soul sister, and we had so much in common. She is another health mindset coach who really dives in on the importance of breaking the rules, specifically the diet and calorie counting rules. She is really on or focuses on the importance of enjoying our health and allowing it to be a playful experience versus forcing it and allowing it to enhance our bodies instead. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm super we excited. Are, we're so excited to be here. Yeah. Um, now, you, our guys, are down in the South. Is that right? We are in the deep South, the belt buckle of the South. <laughs> yeah. It's Alabama. a beautiful little community. Anna, you need to come visit sometime. It's, uh, we're on the banks of the Tennessee River in the Shoals community. There's this rich music history. Leonard Skinner performed here. Elvis Presley recorded here. It's a, it's a cool little town. You, you got to come see us sometime. Fun. I, I'll make that on like my map of places <laughs> to go. <laughs> now, um, my first question, Andy, is going to be directed more towards you. Now, you were a pastor for 10 years. And what was like that changing point in your life or that place of transformation in your life where you felt like you really needed to speak on this intersection of faith and domestic violence and trauma, but it, was it pastor, the pastor role, just not the place for it, or was it the system of the church or where was that for you? So when I was 21, I started pastoring, which is way too young. <laughs> I came from a very <laughs> sheltered background. I had a you know, a wonderful childhood. Um, I had not seen a lot of trauma in, in my life. And at 21 years old, I started pastoring a small congregation in the rural 
Bible Belt of the South, mm-hmm. not expecting to see anything too serious, just to enjoy the congregation and to help people and to minister to families. And in the first two years that I was pastoring a small church, I dealt with uh, counseling couples through divorce and marital problems and remarriage and trying to blend families. I preached the funerals of a 14-year-old and a baby. I talked multiple people down from suicide. Um, I dealt with the alleged child abuse of the, someone was accused in my church of abusing someone else in their family. And I was just overwhelmed. I was not prepared for the brokenness Mm. that people were experiencing. And when I was probably 22 or 23 years old, I got a call from a a well-respected member of our church. She was crying on the phone. I couldn't understand what she was saying. She, she uh, just kept saying, you need to come over. I need help. I don't know what to do. And I couldn't understand what was happening. And I didn't know what I was going to be facing. I was really just a kid. Mm-hmm. And I called Kristen and I said, I don't know what's going on, but I need you to come with we, me. We, we've got to go to, to this lady's house. And so we drove over there and we got there and she was just covered in bruises. Mm-hmm. And she had pictures of where it had happened in the past. And this is a couple that was well-respected in our church, well-respected in the community. Nobody had any idea that anything was going on and she was being abused. And I remember that situation so well because I just had absolutely no frame of reference. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to talk to her. I just had no idea where to go with that. And I was just completely overwhelmed. And that actually ended up probably being one of the best things that could have happened in terms of me being not knowing, mm. right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the most dangerous things you can do when you're, when you're working with people is to think you know. Mm. It's a lot, and you can make mistakes and, and hurt people. And so the only thing I can comfort myself with now looking back is that I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. And so I went on a journey to try to figure it out. And that's kind of what led me to what I do today. Uh, you know, 250 plus interviews later with perpetrators of domestic violence, hundreds of hours spent with victims and survivors trying to understand where they're coming from. And I learned two, two main things that I was completely oblivious to. Number one, that one in four women will experience severe physical abuse in their lifetimes. And number two, that eight out of 10 of the victims that I talked to say that their experience with faith, with the church was a hindrance to them finding safety. Mm -hmm. And that's, we have to address that. And so that's kind of what brought me to the work I do now. Nice. Kristen, I'm going to ask you about that experience for you. How was that for you going to that and seeing that for you and just being by your husband's side? It was, it was difficult. I, it was not as shocking to me, I think, as it was to him because I had been, um, exposed to more of that type of difficulty, um, through people that I observed growing up. And so I was more familiar with domestic violence on the whole than he was. That being said, that doesn't make it any easier to walk into someone's house and see a lady sitting there and just shattered, just feeling absolutely shattered. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was very, very difficult. And the stress that it put on us, my personality type being one that 
feels things very, very deeply mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sometimes before I even know exactly what's going on. And so to, to feel all of that, to pick up on all of that from the different situations that we were dealing with, in addition to Andy feeling the weight of all of this as him mm-hmm. being the, the lead pastor as this church of the church was, was really, really hard. And I think it took a little while. I wasn't super in touch with my feelings and my, my spirit, my, all of that. I, did, I didn't have a real good grasp of the understanding of that back then, but it took several years for me to realize how that was impacting me mm-hmm. mentally, emotionally, mm-hmm. all of that. So mm-hmm. it, it was definitely a learning experience and we have learned so much even about ourselves through that. And it was also very stressful at the same time. Yeah. How did um, you, because I'm also a deep feeler, how do you incorporate the fitness aspect and health to kind of manage some of those deep feelings that you sense? So I, I love that question. It's a very, <laughs> very good question. It's one that I would not have even, if you had asked me that 10 years ago, I would have looked at you like, huh? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Because years ago, I was just picking up heavy stuff in the gym because I liked it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. (laughs) But after a few years, yeah, exactly. I started to realize that it was helpful in managing my stress, that I felt calmer and um, I guess more relaxed after lifting. And it's just been probably the last five or six years that I've started realizing the major impact and connection between mind and body. And that is, that's a game changer for me. Um, Understanding how all of this is connected and how it works together Mm -hmm. is a big motivator in me to continue moving. And that changes from time to time. You know, some, sometimes I might be training heavy and intense, and sometimes I may be doing 10 minute workouts every couple of days. It's going to change, but the movement really, really does center my mind a lot. And that's only, like I said, it's, it's so recent that I've become how very much it impacts my, my mental, my spiritual well being. Yeah. Awesome. Um, this is just an open end question. I know we're focusing, um, on more of the intersection of faith and trauma. Where do you guys think that type of stuff and that, cause a lot of this, of these types of abuse is physical. Um, so how important is the aspect of healing the body alongside doing the mental and the spiritual work with this? Well, that's a, that's a huge question. Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's a huge question. Um, you know, when we, when we think about the brain, I think I'm hopeful that what neuroscience is teaching us about the brain is going to help us understand the brain mind connection and by extension, the brain spirit connection. And so one of the things that, that the social work world has discovered just in the last several years, uh, or at least it's becoming more prominent of an understanding is just how much trauma impacts your, your mindset, your worldview, how do you view yourself, how you view your relationships, how you view your faith, your spirituality, or your connection to God. Uh, and it starts in the very first five or six years of life. You mm-hmm. form beliefs in childhood about who God is, about based on your primary caregiver and how you interact with your primary caregivers and how your your parents interact with each other. And so 
when you look at how that develops over time, a lot of the survivors that I work with, they really see God through the lens of the pain that they have experienced. And what's interesting is you can tell somebody all day long. If you look at the right brain versus the left brain, you can tell somebody's left brain, which is that, that rational decision-making part of you. You can tell somebody all day long, speak to their left brain. You know, God loves you. You're, you have worth, you have value. You deserve to be respected. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to have joy. You deserve to have peace. You can tell somebody that all day long and they can say, yes, yes, I believe that. Mm-hmm. But the right brain, that experiential side mm-hmm. that deals in pictures and emotions and feelings, that's something that has been wired to feel a certain way about themselves. And you can't change that. No amount of, of speaking or reasoning really changes that. Mm-hmm. What changes that is a different experience and the cultivating of a different experience with God, with others, with yourself. And I think that ties in so much to what Kristen was saying, what you were saying about movement. One of the things about movement, about lifting or, or martial arts or anything that you enjoy, movement that you can get into, what it does is it begins to help you to cultivate an experience of something better for yourself. And you have to have that because it, no amount of left brain is going to, you, you know, it's not, there's no amount of didactic reasoning mm-hmm. that's going to change what you've experienced and what you felt in your body. Mm-hmm. You have three brains. You have the brain in your head, you have the brain around your heart, you have the brain around your intestine. And the brain around your heart and your intestine, those neurons are sending signals to your head brain at three, four, five, six times the amount of neurons going from your head to your body, right? So your body is sending so much more information to your brain and your mind. Oh, you froze. In your body, in your gut. Uh Uh-oh. You froze. Have, are we back on? We're back. <laughs> okay. Am I back on now? <laughs> yeah, you're good. You're talking about the three brains, the head, the heart, and the message, um, and the gut, and how that sends all that message to the head. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't so it? much more is coming yeah. from your body to your brain than from yeah. your brain to your body. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, what you feel in your gut, what you experience in your, in your body is, is, determining so much how you end up experiencing your spirituality, your faith, your relationships and your, and your feelings about yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what, so what I see is when I talk to survivors and victims is what they're really grappling with is we can say all day long, I believe this about those things, but what do I really feel about those things? What have my experiences taught me about those things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to, I'm curious what Kristen has to say to that question. Do I need to repeat it? One more time. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I put myself on the spot. I'm like, oh, what? what oh, what was I the question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like somehow that's kind of my fault because I may have gotten off track there. <laughs> no, you're great. I'm glad you brought up the three brains and I'm going to come back to the three brains. Um, I believe the question was about the intersection of faith and trauma and domestic violence and how trauma is, can be so physical. What is the importance of um, the body work with this type of healing when you're going through the mental and the emotional and spiritual healing? So this is one, this, this is something that I, again, really very, very recently, I started practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu just a little over a year ago. 
I started it because I was curious about it and I wanted to learn some self-defense because, you know, that's a cool thing to know Uh, and good. Uh And several months in, I started, I, first of all, my professor and the other, um, people that are there that provide training and training partners and all that are absolutely fantastic. They're very open. Uh, one of the guys, a life coach, and he has helped me to see all of this connection, especially in relation to something like jujitsu, because there's a lot of groundwork. There's a lot of bodies being jammed up into very uncomfortable mm-hmm. spots and mm-hmm. limbs and thread of being broken and choked and all things that our bodies and our minds want to freak out about. Mm-hmm. Right. And depending on what kind of trauma someone has been through in their life, that can very possibly be a trigger for them and can cause people to go into panic attacks Mm -hmm. or hyperventilate, different things like that. Just small, something that seems very, very, very small can trigger them back Mm -hmm. to something that happened, you know, when they were a a child or a teenager or a young adult, some kind of traumatic event. And so as I have been practicing this, you know, showing up two or three times a week to practice for about a year, I'm starting to understand the massive importance of me being willing to safely put my body in an uncomfortable position where my mind is telling me, get out of here. (laughs) But my, but the, but the left side of my brain is saying, no, you're safe. It's okay. And I have seen some big shifts start to take place in, in my mind around when I'm safe and when I am not. And it's been very interesting because I've recently, and I hope I'm not getting too far off track here, no, um, you're doing great. started incorporating a mindfulness technique, meditation, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think it's more on the mindfulness side as I am practicing jujitsu. Mm-hmm. So as I'm in a live role, meaning we're working together on the ground, we're not practicing technique. We're actually trying to, you know, submit people by breaking their arms or choking them or some such awful thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I tend to get really uncomfortable when people start messing with my legs. I've had each of my kneecaps have been dislocated at different times. Mm -hmm. One was just last fall and it happened actually in jujitsu. So my mentally, I'm not recovered yet. My knee's fine. Uh My brain is not. Yeah. And this is, this is a, a pretty surface example of how the triggers can come up in yep. the mind. So when people start fooling around with my, my legs or my knees, my brain tries to freak out, which can make me put myself in an even unsafer position right. because yeah. my brain is not thinking. So I was talking to the friend of mine this last week and he, he recommended to me that I start to sit into it just as if I were using a mindfulness technique for some kind of pain I was experiencing physically. Uh He said, apply the same technique to this mental stress that you're having and breathe into that uncomfortable moment. As we're practicing these, these knee bars and these leg locks and all that, breathe into it, sit into it, know that you're safe with the partner you, that you're practicing with and see if that helps. Mm-hmm. I'm not joking you. I thought, okay, that's cool. I'll try it. And yeah. the very next thing, five minutes later, my mind was like, oh, it's going to be fine. It's yeah. going to be fine. Yeah. I <laughs> and it. I ended up going to a leg lock seminar this oh, Saturday. No two hours of leg lock. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought part of me was like, Chris, are you for real? What are you getting yourself into? 
<laughs> and then the other part of me is like, but exposure therapy is good for the mind and soul. <laughs> and sure that, enough, it was a big difference. So I think, I, I hope that answers your question. No, well, and as it far does, as I think connecting. that was like a really good example of like where your mind is versus compared to your body and yes. the importance of breath work and how important like breath is our life. And so I haven't been reading the Bible, so you may, this may not be completely accurate, but I'm pretty sure the Bible says the breath of life, right? Or has some Mm -hmm. type of reference. So where did Andy go? A little technical Uh difficulties. Hang on. Um, I think he's still, I think we can still hear him. We just lost the screen time. There he is. Sorry about that. No, it's all good. Um, There's always little glitches. We just got to roll with it. So um, I was talking about the importance of breath of life and how that's referenced in the Bible. And I think at least growing up for me, it was more of like this, like, oh, he's this breath of life over here versus no, literally like he's the breath of life. If we really focus it and your example was perfect of like sitting into it, breathe into that pain and allow your mind to understand from your body, it's okay you're safe. Yeah. Um, so I just, I, I'm curious of what you guys have to say about that. If you have more reference of from the biblical text or more experiences, I'm curious to how, how that breath is that interconnection. Cause I believe our breath is our spirit. You know, there's a, it's interesting. There is a difference between religion and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, religion is a set of behaviors or practices that groups use to express their spirituality, which is not inherently bad, which is good. It's just a way of expressing. It's a group of, you know, it's, it's, it's a way of expressing your spiritual values, whatever those are. Um, Unfortunately, religion is very susceptible to becoming more about the behaviors than about the spirituality that they're designed to express. Mm-hmm. And so religion begins to kill what, what you're talking about, this, the breath of life or this idea of the expression of, of how God is at work in your relationship with God or your spirituality, however you express that. Um, religion is just susceptible to crushing that by uh, emphasizing a conformity to the behaviors Mm. or to the practices that, uh, that the group has adopted, right? And it becomes a way of excluding and creating walls and enforcing a certain set of, of expectations. And what gets lost in all of that is the very thing that religion was designed to protect, and that's, that's the spirituality uh, of, of the members of the group and, 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 by extension, those that they try to make a difference in the lives of, of other people. And so when you talk about the, the breath of life, you know, God breathed into Adam, the breath of life. Mm-hmm. It is, it's designed. It's what he's communicating there is that God created human beings with a sacredness to them, mm-hmm. that we are all sacred, that and it's who we are and we compartmentalize our lives and religion, unfortunately, unfortunately becomes a tool to help us compartmentalize our lives instead of living a more holistic life that says, you know, I am a spiritual being and that gives me a sense of worth to God and to myself and to the world around me. Nice. Kristen, do you have anything to add to that? 
I think he, he verbalized that very, very well. And yeah. he echoes my thoughts. Yeah. Okay, cool. Or I echo his thoughts. <laughs> she taught me everything I know. I spoke that to him before he actually said it. Got so. it. <laughs> um, question. So this is kind of my theory. I think there's four brains instead of just three. So I truly believe like gut health, that's where we develop trust and trusting our own self, heart. Um, I don't know. What would you define it like heart as? Would that be your, the faith? You know, I was. I'm. So, I'm so interested to hear your take on it. I was. I was. In my head, it has a much more physiological. I was thinking of it in very physiological terms. Oh, you know, I'm like, where is it? Where it is? Because like, if we're talking about like trusting your gut, and the, if your gut health isn't like fully working, like how can you trust yourself? And I think that's where the importance of health comes in. Um, so I'm just like, like people say, go with what, what your heart is like your heart's desires or, and so I get like, this just came to me now. Like where, where would you say the heart is? Hmm. Wow. You, you didn't tell me this was going to be so challenging. This, I mean, it's such a, be- that's, Hey, I'm, I'm all game. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, the heart is interesting in a lot of sacred literature, the gut, in, contrary to Western, in Western culture, right, in contemporary Western culture, the heart is the seat of the emotions. Mm. Um, but in the in the script, in the Christian scriptures, for instance, in the Bible, mm-hmm. it talks about the bowels, right, which is a much more of re- reference to the gut as the yeah. seat of your emotions or of you know what you really care about, the passion of who you are, and the heart is much more associated in 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 that in that uh, body of work as a place where the decision-making capacity comes from, you know, um, where your treasure is there, will your heart be also, there's some bleed, there's some bleed there between the two concepts, Mm -hmm. but it has, the heart has a more directional aspect to it, I think, as far as how you determine where you're pointed. Yeah. Um, I mean, that makes sense to go with what your heart says or what, like, you know, what people kind of just like, randomly will say, well, what does your heart say? Go with that. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I was just curious, but going back to the four brains, I think we have our fourth brain is in our hands and our feet. Cause this, this is our way where we understand our environment. Most of our nerve endings are in our hands. So if our hands or for those nerve endings were like as big in proportion to our muscles, our hands, our lips, our feet, would be huge just because of how much nerves are in there. And I consider that to be our fourth brain. And just from my journey of healing my body, one of the movements that really, I think helped me get back into my childhood and get back to where some of the trauma was um, displaced or occurred in my life was learning how to crawl again. And that's where I think that's our fourth brain is like understanding that. But then it goes into more of the biblical stuff too. Of Like I asked this to another guest on the show who is a biblical professor. So teaches just biblical text. And I was like, what is the importance of the fact that Jesus came at a time in history where you basically were walking barefoot 
and walking was the main way of transportation and communication. So I'm curious of what you guys have to say about the importance of the timeframe that he came in and then also just the type of training that goes into play with that. I think this is a really good one for him too. He is so <laughs> not, he's so knowledgeable about the scriptures and he's, he's studied so much of the history behind it. Sometimes he talks and I'm like, oh, wow, I did not know that. So here you All go, right, babe. You need to stop now. You're setting, you're setting expectations. That I don't think I can live up. <laughs> we can talk about expectations I, next. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, I think that her and I need a lot more practice at this. And we're going to have to have, I mean, next time we do an interview together, we're going to have to discuss yeah. just how, just how this is going to work. I'm sweating. I'm sweating. All right. Hey. No, I think it's, I'm going to have to go back and find that podcast. It sounds absolutely fascinating to hear an actual biblical. I wouldn't consider myself a biblical scholar. Yeah. I, mean, I went to seminary, okay. um, but, but you know, there's a lot, people talk a lot about the, the, the significance of the timing, right? Mm -hmm. And, and there are a lot of factors in that. I think it's interesting that technologically you're right. There was a lot, it was an, or it was a culture based on the passing of information orally, right? They didn't, mm -hmm. the history, there was a, a strong oral tradition. It was storytelling. Mm -hmm. If you look at Jesus in the gospels, he told stories. I, I heard Bishop T.D. Jake say in an interview not too long ago that if, if Jesus were alive today, he would be a filmmaker mm -hmm. because he, yeah. he told stories, right? Yeah. You know, you think yeah. of all the incredible stories he told. Mm -hmm. And storytelling is such a powerful way to speak to the, the, the right brain mm -hmm. and the idea of movement and relationships and to picture things. And it has a much more tactile feel to it to hear him talk about and he used it was agricultural as well. And so he talked about, you know, the farmer and he talked about the husbandman and he talked about the 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 pressing the grapes, all of these pictures that have this very this tangible aspect to them. If you think about one of the most important traditions of the church or um, practices of the church, the Lord's Supper mm -hmm. or mass. Mm -hmm. um, this is, was instituted by Christ right before his crucifixion with his disciples. He sat down and he broke bread. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that's shed for you. And now to this day, thousands of years later, we still do that. And if you think about that practice in mass or even in the Protestant denominations, the same components are there where you're involving taste, mm -hmm. where you taste the things and touch, where you feel the texture of the bread Mm -hmm. And even the sounds of the chewing, mm -hmm. you're involving all of the senses in this act of spiritual commemoration of the sacrifice of Christ. And so you're bringing the body into this experience and you're bringing the spirit, the, the, the supernatural or the spiritual and the natural together in this kind of beautiful, uh, this beautiful liturgy. Mm -hmm. And, and Jesus did that a lot. Um, throughout his ministry. So I think that's a, yeah, definitely a fascinating way to look at it. Yeah. I just know there, I mean, cause I like even through college when it wasn't a big, like big thing to wear or walk barefoot, like I was always barefoot. Like it was just my natural being. Um, and I think it's just like that grounding aspect. And that's one of the ways that we as humans 
kind of what you're saying of that connection of being in the physical, but also being the supernatural of just like that connection of being connected to the mother earth. You know, I've always, I, I, Anna, I've always said that I believe that some of the things that we do every day that we take for granted, those routines of life that you kind of are alluding to there, even, you know, getting up in the morning and taking a shower every morning, Mm -hmm. you know, brushing your teeth, combing your hair, uh, you know, going out of the house and taking a walk or those, those, those routine activities that you take for granted, those, I, I like to call those the liturgy of life, mm-hmm. right? Because there's, you, you're right. There's a grounding aspect to them. And I have battled with chronic depression for about eight years. And one of the things that is so important in managing depression is that routine, that liturgy of life, that rhythm of going in and feeling yourself and feeling your body and doing those routines. There's a groundedness to that. That's, that's really settling. That is so important. Can you explain um, what a liturgy is for some of the listeners that may not know that term? Sure. And hopefully, hopefully no, you know, scholars are listening because I'm going to butcher (laughs) it. Um, But you know, a, a liturgy in a practical sense is when you go to church, it's a shared experience. It's a shared experience of uh, the religious rites or the religious ceremony that happens. So depending on what kind of church that you go to, you may experience like a high church pageantry where people walk down the aisles and you have group readings and recitations. Um, it's, it's the schedule of the service that you share together, right? So um, liturgy includes reading the Apostles' Creed as a congregation or singing together is a part of the liturgy. It's a shared experience. And it speaks to the rhythm of life. Again, part of connecting relationally with other people. Uh, and there've been a lot of studies that have been done on this. There's like, there's this huge amount of power in doing something at the same time that someone else does it. The connection. Right. Sharing. Yeah. There's a connection that happens mm-hmm. on a level that we don't fully understand. Yeah. When you're doing something, the same motions, dance can be that, you know, choreograph choreography of any kind. And that's what liturgy is. It's spiritual choreography. Hmm. Uh, it's purposeful spiritual choreography. Mm-hmm. And, and it's something that has a rhythm to it. And you do the same thing over and over and over again, every Sunday, every, you know, every time you go, you do the same practice mm-hmm. and it binds you to those other people in that community. Yeah. And it's powerful that way. I love how you brought up just like the simple things that you personally do individually for yourself as a liturgy. Um, Kristen, how do you incorporate that mindset practice with some of the work that you do with the women of really getting into their body and creating this mindful practice? This is one of my favorite, favorite things to talk with women about because diet culture in in the west as we experience it here in the u.s has done a a very very good or bad job at helping us to really disconnect from our bodies Mm -hmm. so take take any diet that comes to your mind for example um take the a traditional diet most of the time it's going to be very restrictive it's going to tell you to power through the hunger you're going to be fine wait until the next time Mm -hmm. this is all that you need you have to have this amount. 
if you if you need any more well your body is lying to you you don't actually need that you're just used to having it or take sugar for example people um very many people seem to be convinced that sugar is addictive because when they choose to cut it out they're craving it therefore they equate it with addiction and so i try to explain that when you restrict something most of the time you're going to end up wanting it yeah that's just the nature of humans if i tell my kid you know you can't have the candy right now. Well, they're going to want candy even more, or, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you can't go do this right now. You can't watch TV right now. Well, they're going to want to watch it even more. So it is the nature of humans to want what we are told that we cannot have. Mm-hmm. So, um, it does, it teaches us to disconnect from our bodies more and more and more in a culture where our emotions and everything are already not viewed as things that need to be felt experienced and then let go. Mm-hmm. And so one of my favorite things to talk about is to start experiencing food again. I, I'm a foodie. I love food so much. <laughs> I love trying new things. There's, it's very, very rare that I try something that I don't like. And I try really weird stuff. And I've tried stuff all over the world. And there have been yeah. like three things, three things I don't like. And so learning to experience food again, instead of just, you know, we're shoving it down our, our, our mm-hmm. face at work, or we're like grabbing bites off of our kids' plates, you know, going throughout the day, or we're run, running around heating up everybody else's meals, and then we get to sit down to ours and it's cold. And mm-hmm. there's just so many ways, especially if you have children in your life, it can be even more so difficult. And I've noticed with people that have very, very high work schedules, it's really hard to sit down and really experience food because as, as I said, I mean, they are working really, really hard mm-hmm. and sometimes they only get like a 10 or 15 minute break. So I love to talk to women about ways that they can start learning to experience this, even with the schedules that they have, if they have only 10 minutes mm-hmm. to eat, or, you know, if they don't have time to make this, this pretty meal, like I love pretty food, but I totally don't make it all the time. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> But it it goes again to what we were talking about, incorporating all of our senses. Mm -hmm. So the food is in front of us. And the first thing that comes to mind is taste, obviously. Right. But there's so much more to food. I mean, Mm -hmm. we see it, first of all, which is one of the reasons I like pretty food. Like, Mm -hmm. it really makes my eyes feel happy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I have happy eyes. (laughs) (laughs) And so then, you know, we we cut into the, the steak or whatever there's the texture involved mm, or if yes. we're picking something up, there's the texture mm-hmm. there. We're putting it in our mouth and we're chewing it. I don't want to get too extreme, but the food tastes good in the mouth. Yeah. You're making me water right now. So we're, <laughs> so we're experiencing the texture again. We're breathing in the smells as we're cooking or as mm-hmm. we're out to eat, wherever there's all of this in there. And he said, chewing, we're here, people chewing. I don't like hearing people chew, but I do like to hear my food being cut. So <laughs> So all of those are ways that we can start to experience food again. And another thing that has been really helpful for some of the the women that I work with is for them to slow down their chewing just a little bit Mm -hmm. so that they have time to be like, oh, I just caught like a cinnamon flavor here or, oh, Mm -hmm. that tasted like sage. Just Mm -hmm. a little bit to incorporate the mindfulness aspect of it so that they can again begin uh, begin to experience food in that joyful way that we all had when we were born, that we all had as children. And that somewhere along the the way, due to diet culture, I do believe, 
mm-hmm. that we've lost that, that appreciation and that joy for, and there's, there's just so much guilt involved now. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one of my favorite ways to bring mindfulness in is to pay attention to our food as we're eating it. Yeah. So do you, have you found women who you've worked with really and start incorporating this mindfulness and this practice, almost like this liturgy around food again, that they are able to start trusting themselves a little bit more? Yes. Yes. In fact, the lady that I just was recently working with, this was just so cool to me because I had, I asked her a few questions at the end of our, our three months together. Right. And she had jumped from like a two up to a nine in experiencing her food and feeling oh, that's more comfortable so cool. around it. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is amazing. Yes. Because she had texted me probably, I don't know, three or four weeks after we started working together, she shot me a text and she said, I cannot believe how much I was not even tasting my food before this. Mm-hmm. Like she wasn't even aware that it was an issue. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't on her radar. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now that she starts to actually be mindful and pay attention to the food, she realizes how much she had no idea what it tasted like that she was basically just inhaling it on, on breaks. She has a pretty high pressure job, works really, really hard and is very driven, very successful. And so for her to be willing to slow down just a little bit mm-hmm. and notice the food, I didn't tell her to like change any of her food. Mm-hmm. I just wanted her to start noticing the food. Mm-hmm. And so just a few weeks later for her to be like, yeah, I'm actually, I'm taking a 10 minute break so I can, you know, sit down and take a few breaths and enjoy my food. That is a big, big deal. Yeah. It's a very big deal. Yeah. Do you have any stories of like women who are like, got to that place and then they're like, oh my gosh, I can trust, like, feel like they can trust themselves or really listen into that intuition of their gut? Yes. That I think for most of us is a little bit of a slower process, yes. especially depending on what our, what our background is around food, what our relationship has been with food. Mm-hmm. Some of us have come from disordered eating patterns, mm-hmm. some of us from full blown eating disorders. And so that can take a little bit longer, but there's one lady that comes to mind that when we first, when we first were working together, she was very, very worried about all of her food. Like she was messaging me very often and being like, is, is it okay if I eat this? Is it okay if I eat this? Mm-hmm. Can I? can I use this can of soup to put my roast? Different things like that. Yeah. Not through any fault of her own, but the, the person, the trainer that she had had, I think she had a personal trainer before me. And that person as well-meaning as she was, was telling this other lady that this has no business in your diet. You should never eat this. This is the mm. worst thing ever, including like pouring a can of soup on your roast. <laughs> and so she didn't have very much freedom at all around foods. And she was, she was feeling really guilty if she had to drive through somewhere or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so within, we weren't even, we didn't even have like any calls one-on-one. Most of what we were talking through was via a Facebook group mm-hmm. okay. that, that I opened for her to be in. And so it was mostly just, you know, text type messages in the uh-huh. Facebook group. But at the end of eight weeks, oh my goodness, she had changed so much about the way that she was approaching food. She shot me a text and be like, Hey, I went and got a shake at such and such. Nice. And I felt good about it. And it tasted yeah. good. I'm like, oh, this is so great. You know, and yeah. she was also exploring at the same time, other things that she could add in that would help her feel good as well. Mm-hmm. So she, she's like, for example, she started adding in, you know, a, a veg, a serving of veggies or two a day and noticing that that made her feel good. 
she also started enjoying, you know, shakes or smoothies or whatever it was she was wanting, which made her mentally feel so much better and so Mm -hmm. much freer. And then she wasn't in a scarcity mindset around those Mm -hmm. foods anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. And it sounds like she was able just to trust what her body was telling her was absolutely like like what's easy for her to continue to eat. Exactly. And that's the beautiful thing is that the more women that I work with, the more I see that it's a very individual approach Yeah. because something that feels really good and needful for somebody may not feel that way for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really eye-opening and just neat to watch them start to trust themselves more Mm -hmm. and figure out what's going to work best for them. Mm -hmm. That's going to give them they're, they're creating their own best life moving yeah. forward instead of like me being like, uh, well, you need to do this, 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 the cookie cutter approach. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I just want to say, I am so, I'm just sitting here listening to Kristen and thinking, man, she is so cool. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things that she, she uh, recently, she's been experimenting with our kids. We have two children uh-huh. and they're, they're eight and five. In fact, it, when you go back to edit this, or if you do edit this, you're going to see one of the kids in the background over my uh, right oh, shoulder. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't think you noticed at the time. No. But, but, uh, this is great. But she's been, she's been letting them kind of have a lot more control over the decisions they make, mm, which you cute. talk about countercultural. Yeah. You your kids, you can have as many as you want, as long as you're listening to your body. Right. What is your body telling you that feels good? And then if they make a decision that might be considered bad, the way we've moralized, you know, food, of course, uh, you know, but what that really means is later on, maybe they, they feel uncomfortable in their body because they ate too much of something or, you know, and, and so she's just letting them experience that and, and, and experiment with that. And so I'm, I'm excited to see how that helps them kind of develop a healthy mindset as they get older. That's so cool. Kristen, do you, can you speak more about that? Oh my, my. (laughs) This is, I got you back. (laughs) This is, um, this has been a comfort zone thing for me, very much stepping outside of it. Yeah. It has been probably just in the last year and even more so in the last couple of months that. I have started realizing that I haven't been doing the same approach with food with my kids as I do my clients. And I realize obviously they are children, so they do have to be guided to some extent. They're not grown adults. Right. At the same time though, um, like I, I have been one for quite some time to be like, look, enjoy this food. And also if you, even if you don't like these particular vegetables, I need you to eat like, you know, three carrots or something Mm -hmm. to get them in a habit of it. Now it's not an issue for my older one, my eight-year-old daughter. She's always been, she's very similar to me in that she just tries all the food and she likes pretty much everything. Uh Now my five-year-old son, on the other hand, (laughs) it's a little more difficult. (laughs) And so it has been, it's been a little bit scary and a little uncomfortable experience, experimenting with this because I was just reminded of something this very day about forcing children to eat vegetables. They said that, and this is a lady, this is what she does. This is, this is her area of expertise. The forcing kids to eat their vegetables is, is very, very high likelihood of them developing 
an unhealthy relationship with that food when they get older. And as soon as she said that, I thought, oh, I was forced to eat broccoli and Brussels sprouts. Mm -hmm. And I detested those forever, Mm -hmm. like forever. And I still, I'm not eating any broccoli. Don't throw broccoli at me. I might eat a Brussels sprout. dinner. (laughs) That's right. That is not happening up in my house. And I remember my mom rarely ever cooking peas because her mom forced her to eat peas. Oh, and I was like, interesting. Yes. And so I don't, I haven't forced him to eat something that he really, really hates, but he actually pretty much doesn't like any vegetables. And so I'm like, well, you need to eat two or some, something like that. Yeah. But honestly, I, I have been so wrong so many times in the past. And the more I learn, the more I'm like, I don't actually know. (laughs) And so I'm willing to be like, I could be wrong about this. I think part of it, you know, as a mom, I'm like, well, what if they don't get all their nutrients? I'm all about them having their cookies and milkshakes. That's totally fine. And also they have to have their nutrients, right? (laughs) But I know this is not like a short-term approach. This is a a Mm long-term approach about them developing trust towards their bodies and being able to start to experiment with different foods that they like and don't like and find that out as they're growing into adulthood. So Mm -hmm. it's very, it's very long-term. But the more I'm thinking about it, the more I, f- I feel really comfortable with setting out the vegetables on the table. We usually have like um, those little mini sweet peppers and we have carrots and salad. I always have like bag chopped up salad. Mm-hmm. And then we usually have four or five different fruits around. I'm starting to feel a lot more comfortable with just setting that out on the table. And if he wants some, let him get it. Nice. It's interesting well, because I'm pretty sure my husband suggested that years ago. And I was like, Mm-mm, that's not happening. You know, maybe more important, I don't know, but maybe even more important than what you're trying. What I think is interesting is that you're trying something and that there's this mindset of being okay if it's not exactly right. Mm-hmm. And that's something, I mean, I feel like that may be more important than the specific thing that you're trying. And I think that applies to a lot of areas of life. I think Mm -hmm. it ties this conversation together as well, because when I think about what religion is susceptible to do, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to sound like I'm down on religion. I'm not. Religion has a role and a place, Mm -hmm. but what religion is susceptible to do, along with culture, diet culture, Mm -hmm. same thing, is, is to not allow for any exploration. Or yeah. any variation, or any change, or any brokenness, or any, everything has got to be just so. And so, what happens is people never figure out; they, they never discover themselves, yeah. or their relationship with God, or their relationship with people. Nothing ever really gets mature. Yeah, we're we're stunted by this inability to think I'm going to try something and it's going to be wrong. So what? Mm-hmm. Right? If 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 this is a horrible decision, and I mean, if this is the wrong way to go about you know, providing your kids with food, guess what? They'll be fine. Mm-hmm. They'll be fine if they don't get exactly all the nutrients they need or if they make, if they eat 10 Oreos, mm-hmm. it's not the end of the world. <laughs> you know, they'll figure something else out. We'll figure something else out. But the mindset that we give them in that process, that Kristen gives them in that process of saying, it's okay to experiment. It's okay to figure out what works for you. It's okay to be wrong sometimes mm-hmm. or, you know, fail at something, you know, one time. That mindset is so valuable. Well, and it's so much more open. Like it's just there of like, okay, well that didn't work. Obviously let's figure something else out. And I go, it makes me think of, um, the fact of just embracing the unknown of like, 
I don't know if this is going to work and not pretending or controlling the outcome. And it makes me go back to the first story that you opened up with of um, the woman who called you and had all the bruises on her body and how you said, I don't know how to handle this and just how you embraced the unknown. And I think that's when we invite the Holy Spirit to move in us, when we fully surrender in those moments of like allowing that power that you're referring to earlier of like to move within us, to guide us to the answer or a failure that will guide us to the answer. Um, do you have anything to say about that? Um, you know, I'm going to be super honest. Like, is this is a good place for some yeah, vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm not nearly as spiritual of a person as I would like to be. Mm. Uh, and when you talk like that, it makes me want that more. It makes mm. me want to be uh, in touch more with that part of myself. Mm. I spent a lot of time when I was going through some of the worst parts of my depression before I had really come to grips with it, doubting, uh, my faith, doubting the value of faith mm -hmm. and, and struggling to embrace any kind of faith. Mm -hmm. And I still have a lot of the same skepticisms and, and, and it's funny because I, you know, I minister to churches. I'll be speaking to a congregation on a Sunday morning, uh, uh, very soon. And I get to stand in front of them and say, a lot of things that I believe with my left brain mm. that I choose to believe mm -hmm. and also have this sense of longing mm. to be more in touch with the experiential aspects of, of, you know, being spiritual. Mm. And so that doesn't answer your question, but it's, you know, it's kind of where, when you talk about the spirit moving, mm -hmm. it's something I'm searching for. Mm. I think we all are. I think that's the, journey of the, this life that we live. I mean, a lot of like spiritual gurus will say like, we're in this space suit living a life, but we're spiritual beings where I'm like, well, there's a reason we're in the physical, even though we may be spiritual, there's a reason for that longing. There's a reason for us to be in the physical, to learn something. And I guess I go back to being, you know, what the Bible says about being made in his image. And what does his image, if we really are an image or a reflection of him, of the Holy One, of the divinity, of this higher power, of the universal pulse and rhythm, like, what does that mean for us? Like, we have a pulse. Our heart has a pulse. What does that mean to be, like what you were saying earlier with the liturgy stuff of just like being in rhythm with that? and yeah. being connected in that way. And I think there's, there is a physical longing, like the hunger never leaves us. You could eat, but the next morning you're still going to be hungry. Like you're that longing for this holiness. I don't think will ever leave us no matter yeah. where you are on this journey. And I think yeah. that's where I go back to the physical aspect of things. You could exercise and be the fittest one year. And then the next year, if you don't keep going after it, you're not going to stay that, that level 
So it's that longing is important. So I would say embrace that longing. Yeah. Not to be cliche, but it's, it is about the journey, the destination we get caught up thinking about, but there's a lot to be said for, for the, the process Mm -hmm. uh, of, of, of going after that. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I continue to choose, you know, my personal faith, which is Christianity. Mm-hmm. The reason I continue to choose that is because when I see the gospel that Christianity is uh, centered around, which gospel literally means good news mm-hmm. and what's encapsulated in the life of Jesus as this one who said he lived in this body, he experienced yeah. God experienced what I experience. He mm-hmm. came down to be a man, to be a human being, to feel like you, you said earlier, to walk barefoot around the Middle East and in the sands, um, and then to go and experience death, a death that he described as a reconciliatory death that he gave his life for, um, for humanity. There's something so beautiful that calls me to that side of myself in a way that, that nothing else does. Mm-hmm. And so I continue to choose that. I continue to choose to look towards that. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think you're probably right that that longing is, is good. And it may always be something that calls me towards, Mm -hmm. uh, towards the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kristen, do you have anything? This is is along the same lines when you were mentioned, you were talking about control, being willing to Mm -hmm. let go of that control that that has been a big uh, issue for me. You and, and me both, sister. <laughs> I just I just noticed when I said issue that seemed to be a Freudian slip because I need to learn to just sit with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been working with my therapist recently though about um not needing to feel like I have some element of control mm-hmm. because a lot of times for me, control is trying to create a sense of peace, a sense of safety. And I I just, I wrote something very, very recently, just this week, that control doesn't equal peace. It doesn't equal happiness. Mm -hmm. Obviously, structure, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the need to have to control the things. Yeah. And so me learning, for example, when I, you know, when I stopped calorie counting three and a half years ago, Mm -hmm. that was a massive step outside of my comfort zone because that was a modicum of control that I felt like it was an illusion of control that I felt that I had in a time in my life where a lot of other things were completely out of my control. I felt like I could control that. So to Mm -hmm. stop counting was, uh, I guess, again, exposure therapy to -hmm. the thing that was Mm -hmm. very, very fearful for me. And then again, you know, around my kids, you know, because I want, I want my kids to be happy and healthy and all of that stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. but I think what Andy said about, um, helping them to develop that mindset of exploration and mm-hmm. trust and mm-hmm. failing and getting back up and well, I mean, trying something that seems like failing, mm-hmm. but really, you know what, it's something that didn't work for me. So let's try something else. Right. Yeah. It's a lesson in it. That's outside of my comfort zone too. And that, that way I know though, since it feels uncomfortable, I'm probably doing something that is, is right. <laughs> I'm growing for yes. sure. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, we are getting close to, um, the end. Is there anything else that you guys want to share? 
I have enjoyed this so much. I just appreciate you so much asking us on. This has just been incredibly enjoyable. Oh, same. It's been a joy. Yeah. If anybody, you know, if, if anybody's watching this and you know, we, the, the faith in domestic violence is, is my passion to help Mm -hmm. people rediscover that no matter what you've been through, no matter what you consider a failure in your life or what somebody has told you about who you are, um, God loves you. You are a, you are sacred. Your identity is sacred as a human being. And that has nothing to do with decisions you've made or decisions that have made been made for you. Uh, you matter, you have worth, you have value, and you absolutely deserve to reach for, to take this journey. And we're all on it. Mm-hmm. We're all on it. And so you absolutely deserve to reach out and take a step towards the journey that you want to take um, in regards to faith and movement and, 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 and living the life that, that gives you joy and peace. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, and that you. can be, that can be a really scary step. That one yeah. thing, if that can be a very scary step to take, mm-hmm. especially depending on where someone's coming from, that can mm-hmm. be terrifying. Mm-hmm. And it can also be one of the biggest decisions towards developing the life that you love mm-hmm. that you could take. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll have all your guys's, um, connections and links down in the show notes. So people, if they felt connected to you, they can reach out to you. Um, cause that's the beauty of the world that we live in now is like, we get to connect even if it's not in person. So, um, we'll just make sure everyone has that information. And for the listeners, um, for those who may be struggling with their faith, um, questioning God or being angry at God, um, know that we have all been there. Um, and for those who may not believe in God and believe more in the divine energy of the universe, um, just tap into that. It's a very powerful source that we are all trying and exploring to understand. And with that, we will call it the end of the show. Strong Ones, thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it out with your family and friends. Give it the five stars and that we would love a review from you. Other than that, I'll be peacing out. I'll be back next week. Hey, Strong Ones, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. Many of you know I am hosting my first Women of Iron Strength Retreat. This is June 22nd and 23rd down in Salt Lake City with Ann Castevens, a Strong First team leader. We are going to be diving into how to get your first pull-up or increase your pulse with a weighted pull-up, how to get a PR with your press, play around, sort around as you improve your pistol squats. Throughout the retreat, we will also be diving into skills and drills and effective ways of training for the Strong First Level 1 and or Level 2. This is not a Strong First event. This is just a retreat to help cultivate women together to build that mental, physical strength and confidence to go into possibly a Strong First certification. And if you are interested, this is a great retreat to help you and start training for an Iron Maiden. I am so pumped about this event. I am extending out the early bird price until June 14th. 
That means you will be saving $100 on this event. The day and a half retreat, first day we'll be going over all the drills and the skills for those three lifts and the level one, level two skills. And the second day is the day where we will allow and open up for PRs. So if you've always been hesitant to lift heavy and get PRs and having eyes on you, this is a really good retreat and chance and opportunity for you to practice owning your strength and the fact that it's safe to be seen. The goal of this retreat is to help you increase those PRs with those three lists increase PRs in life with building friendships and cultivating training buddies and creating a community of strong women who are eager to support each other along our strength journey. Again, you'll be saving $100 until June 14th. I so look forward to having you at this retreat. If you have any questions, please reach me out to me. I'm always on social media. You can find the links to the Instagram and Facebook down in the show notes. I will also put my email in the show notes as well. So you can reach out to me there. Again, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. And I so look forward to this retreat where we are building a strong community of women, helping each other improve and getting some PRs with those lifts and PRs in life. Thank you so much and blessings on your journey.